Let's turn in our Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. God has a big eraser. Though Judah sinned and they were punished, God still allowed them to start over and to rebuild. Two biblical books, Ezra and Nehemiah, describe the three waves of Jewish patriots who immigrated and returned to Jerusalem. The first return we read about in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. It was led by a man named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel did what? He rebuilt the temple, right? Ezra chapters 7 through 10 recount the second return under Ezra. And Ezra rebuilt the people. And the third return to Jerusalem was led by a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, correct? We talked about Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple, which ended in chapter 6. Now between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's a period of 57 years. Did you know between last Sunday and this Sunday, it was 57 years? You knew it was a long week, wasn't it? <laughs> Here's some chronology. The first wave of Jews returned to Judah with Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. They started work on the temple shortly thereafter, 535, and it was finished in 515 B.C. For the next six decades, very little goes on there in Judah. Most of the Jews are content to remain in Babylon. They're content to carry on with their lives along the Euphrates. But it was during this time that the story of Esther takes place, for your information. In fact, the book of Esther spotlights how God protected the Jews during that time, even while they were still living in Persia. In 445 B.C., the Persian king Artaxerxes Longimanus was issued a decree that authorized Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. But before walls can be rebuilt, God needs to build up the builders of those walls. The people have become lethargic. They've compromised spiritually. They are in need of revival. And that's why 13 years before Nehemiah returns to build the walls, God raises up a priest, a man by the name of Ezra. Ezra returns to Judah along with others, and he leads a revival of purity among the Jews. So remember, Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, Ezra rebuilt the people, and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Chapter 7 begins. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Zariah. Now Ezra's genealogy traces back 16 generations to the first high priest, Moses' brother Aaron. Some famous priests are in this list, if you'll look closely. Zadok was David's high priest. Uzi was good with an automatic weapon. <laughs> Phineas was Aaron's grandson, the guy who ended the judgment God had sent upon Israel. Remember, he entered the tent and he thrust the javelin through an Israeli and his Midianite girlfriend as they mocked God's laws in their act of fornication. It was a bold move on Phineas's part. Eleazar was Aaron's son and Moses' nephew. In other words, Ezra came 
from noble stock, a descendant of the high priest. He had a zeal for God surging through his veins. Godly passion was part of his heritage. Verse 6 tells us, This Ezra came up to Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Notice Ezra is called a skilled scribe. Now when we think of a scribe, we envision a monk sitting at a wooden desk with a quill and ink in hand, painstakingly copying an ancient manuscript. And yes, this was the function of some of the scribes. But most scribes were not just stenographers, they were communicators. They studied God's word, and they taught it to the people. And this was Ezra. Ezra taught God's word to the Jews in Babylon. And Ezra had a vitally important job. For Israeli culture was full of biblical references and biblical reflections. In other words, you picked up a fear of God and at least a cursory knowledge of his laws through the Israeli culture. Babylon was different. In Babylon, there was a pagan culture. And if you were to know God's word, you had to be taught at home or by the teachers or by the scribes. This is the situation that's developed today in America. There was a day when American culture was based on a biblical worldview and on biblical truth no longer. Today, we are as pagan as the Babylonians. And this is why teaching the Bible is so vital. If you're going to know God's word, you have to be taught at home and at church by your parents or by the scribes. This is why a strategic Jewish institution developed during the Babylonian exile. They called it the synagogue. The word means gathering or assembly. Before the captivity, the Jews didn't need synagogues. They all assembled at the temple there in Jerusalem. But in Babylon, they had no temple. And so they had a substitute. They invented the synagogue. And it was there that they met to study and to pray and to worship. When the post-exile Jews settled in Galilee, they continued to build their synagogues. Even though they had come back, they were living in Galilee. They found the benefit of the synagogue meetings. And so they built synagogues there in Galilee. Jesus spent time, remember, in the synagogue at Nazareth. And then he healed the man with the withered hand there at the synagogue in Capernaum. Spent a lot of time in the Jewish synagogues. When the rebuilt temple of Zerubbabel was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., the Jews were once again scattered throughout the world without a temple. And it was the synagogue as they developed in Europe and Asia and Africa and other places where the Jews migrated. It was the synagogue that kept Judaism alive over the last 2,000 years. Well, evidently, Ezra asked King Artaxerxes for permission to return to Jerusalem. For we're told the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Ezra left for Jerusalem in the year 458 B.C. Verse 7, Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month. Notice he arrived in the summertime. It was late July, early August on the Jewish calendar in the Hebrew month of Av, 
which was in the seventh year of the king. It's interesting. Tisha Biav, or the ninth of Av, was the anniversary of the temple's destruction. That was the day that the Babylonians brought down and toppled the temple. It's no accident that Ezra arrived in the month of Av at this particular time. The timing of his arrival was pre-planned, obviously. So on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. The 900-mile trip from Persia back to Jerusalem took Ezra four full months. Now verse 10 makes Ezra's mission clear. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Notice his threefold ambition. It should be ours. Study God's word. Do God's word. Teach God's word. Notice he said his heart was to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. I like that. I like that order. Study the word. Do the word. Teach the word. Some people leave out that middle commandment. They like to study it and teach it, but they don't do it. That don't work. The do comes before the teach. Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Ezra was not only a skilled scribe, but here he's called an expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord. Wow, how would you like to be called that? An expert in the commandments of the Lord. How would you like to be known as a Bible expert? (laughs) Now, let me ask you a question. What is your expertise? Because we're all an expert at something. Everybody is an expert in some area of life. And I dare say that you are an expert where you have invested the most time and the most effort and where you have the most experience, where you have extended yourself to the greatest degree. That's where your expertise lies. It's where you've invested your passion and your intensity and your energy and your concentration. Let me suggest that when it comes to the Bible, we all should be an expert, not just Ezra, not just the pastor, Oh, but Sandy, the Bible is a big book. Man, it's a huge book. There's so much in the Bible to assimilate. Hey, you feel about the Bible the way I feel about automotive repair or about cooking cheesecakes or about stamp collection. For me, those subjects just seem too big to grasp. But here's how you master a subject. Recall what Ezra did in chapter 7, verse 10. He prepared his heart to seek the Lord, the law of the Lord, and to do it and to teach it. That's how you become an expert. And anybody can become an expert if they follow those three things. Ezra became an expert in the scriptures the way you became an expert in your pursuit. You prepared. You put your heart into it. You got involved in it. You studied it. You sought it. You applied it. You shared it with others. Guys, you can't master the Bible unless the Bible masters you. 
The Bible wasn't given to sit on your shelf or just to adorn your coffee table. It's been said the best thing to do with the Bible is to know it in the head, stow it in the heart, sow it in the world, and show it in the life. Guys, let's all be Bible experts. You know, it's possible that Psalm 119 was Ezra's thoughts on the vitality and the greatness of God's Word. Go home and read Psalm 119, and you'll know how Ezra felt about the Scriptures. Notice, too, all three emissaries who led the Jews back to the land are, in a sense, a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah all carried out the king's orders and worked in the lives of God's people. This is the Holy Spirit's job for us, in us. He has been sent by the king, King Jesus, to rebuild our lives. And how does he do it? He uses God's word. It's interesting, even the names are parallels. Zerubbabel means melted by Babylon. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He melts our prideful stubbornness and he purifies our motives. Ezra means helper. The Holy Spirit helps us in a million zillion ways. And Nehemiah means comforter. Jesus called the Spirit another comforter. Look for the parallels as we go through these books between the ministry of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, verses 12 through 26 give us the letter that commissioned Ezra. His job was threefold. Encourage the people, embellish the temple, and establish judges in the land. We're told Artaxerxes, king of kings, later Nehemiah, will serve as this man's cupbearer. It's also interesting that Artaxerxes had a stepmom. Her name was Esther. I'm sure he was taught God's word from an early age. He was taught about the one true God. He even became acquainted with the Hebrew Scriptures. It says, To Ezra, the priest, Artaxerxes is writing, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteered to go up to Jerusalem, may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, 
to issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, the Euphrates River, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Wow. How about getting the king's support? That certainly does it. But notice the king puts a limit on Ezra. As the father said to his daughter, I put a limit on her spending and she proceeded to exceed it. Evidently, Artaxerxes was worried that Ezra might be a free spender himself. And so here's his limit. Up to 100 talents of silver. That's three and three-quarter tons of silver. 100 cores of wheat. That's 600 bushels of wheat. 100 baths of wine. 100 baths of oil. Both about 600 gallons. And salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Obviously, Artaxerxes feared the Lord. Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. Ezra is given official Persian permission to impose a temple tax on the people who come to worship. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Ezra becomes the governor of the Persian province west of the Euphrates. Now, whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Ezra becomes a very powerful man. He's vested with power and power to punish those who disobey. He has both civil and religious authority. He's a priest and a public officer at the same time. He says, blessed be the God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. You know, wow, you know, God would move upon the king to give me such free reign and to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And notice part of Ezra's job was to beautify the house of the Lord. You see, Zerubbabel had his hands full just building the temple. And therefore, he wasn't too worried about the little details and the finish work and, you know, the trim and all the gold plating ornamentation and so forth. He just wanted to get the job done. But it was Ezra's job to come back and embellish the temple that Zerubbabel had built. And here's the point. God doesn't just want a temple. He wants a glorious temple, an outstanding temple, a temple that will catch the eye and shine the light of God. And the same is true with his New Testament temple, the church. It's not just enough for us to come together. He wants our love for each other to be so lavish and our works so diligent and our service so spectacular and our spiritual fruit so abundant that it catches the eye of this world. He wants us to shine forth His grace and His glory as brightly as possible. 
Ezra concludes in verse 28, So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. In the first 20 verses of chapter 8, Ezra lists the families that came with him from Babylon. He mentions a total of 1,496 men. But there were no Levites. And this was a problem. You remember the Levites were those who worked in the temple. And so how do you embellish the temple when you have no Levites or no servants to work in the temple? According to the law, only the Levites could do the service of the temple. And so Ezra sends recruiters to Kasiphia, which was a Levite settlement, and they come back with 38 Levites and 220 servants. And I'm sure the line of reasoning used to recruit these Levites went as follows. Hey, what's a Levite without a temple? That's like, what's a cook without a kitchen? Or what's a mechanic without a shop? Or what's a chemist without a laboratory? Or what's a Christian without a church? How can you be a worshiper of God if you never enter into God's temple? Put it another way, how can you be God's child if you never take the time or make the effort to relate to the rest of the family? That's what I've got against these Lone Ranger Christians. I suppose you can be a Christian and never come to church, but you won't be much good. I mean, how can you be part of a family if you never come home and you never fellowship and hang out with the family? I've never been able to figure that out. It's possible, I'm sure, but it's certainly not healthy. There is a rabbinical story that claims that there were Levites on this caravan, but they were unable to serve. And the reason is that when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, brought them to Babylon in the beginning of the captivity, he demanded that they entertain him by playing their instruments and singing the songs of Judah. They refused to entertain the pagan king with God's music. And in order to avoid having to perform for the pagan king, they bit off their fingertips so they wouldn't be able to play their instruments. And so they didn't have many fingertips, and so they weren't much good when they came back to help in the temple, and that's why they had to recruit new Levites. Verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava. Ezra camps at Ahava on his way to Jerusalem. He says that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Now Ezra's delegation was traveling with a lot of money, as we saw earlier. And he was worried about being a target. Robbers roamed the roads from Persia to Judah. And Ezra debated on asking the king for a police escort. But, but see, he kind of worked himself between a rock and a hard place because he had already told the king that God would protect them. I can't go back now. 
and ask for protection, police protection, I'll undermine my witness. And Ezra really doesn't know what to do. You ever been in that boat? And so he does what we all should do when we really don't know what to do. He humbled himself and he sought God. They camped by the Yahava to fast and to pray and to seek God's direction before they moved on. Guys, when was the last time you stopped? You took a break from the hustle and bustle of your life and you camped out just to communicate with God? To see how it might go with you and with your little ones? What directions you might need to take? Notice how verse 23 ends. God provides Ezra with a plan. Verse 24 tells us, I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Serabiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. I weighed into their hand 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold. And you remember how much a talent weighed? 100 pounds. One talent. 20 gold basins worth 1,000 drachmas and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. In other words, Ezra did what Kathy and I do whenever we go on vacation. We get out our money and we divide it in half in case one of us gets ripped off, we'll be able to pull a little money together so we can get back home. And that's what Ezra did. He took and he divided up his money among the 12 leaders of the 12 groups so that if one of them ended up getting poached by some of the robbers, the others would still be able to have most of their resources. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel in Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. In other words, they'll all get weighed in when they arrive to make sure nothing's missing. And so the priests and the Levites receive the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui, with the number and weight of everything. All the weight was written down at that time. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. And this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people and the house of God. Chapter 9. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, 
Ezra doesn't even have time to get his bags unpacked before there's trouble. There is a big problem. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, the Mosquitoites, and the Uptites, and the Adasites. In other words, the Jews had married idolaters. These were the abominations of the Canaanites. Idolatry. Sorcery. You know, immorality. They had married pagan people. Idolaters. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. The leaders were supposed to be examples. Instead, they were the chief perpetrators. And notice how Ezra reacts to this crime. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and I sat down blown away, just astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. This was a serious offense. And it grieved Ezra. He rips his clothes, an oriental sign of angst and anguish. And then he plucks out his hair from his head and from his beard. He just grabs his hair and he's just, he, he just can't believe what's happened. Pulls a hair out of his head. Pulls a hair out of his beard. You know, when my kids were little, I grew a beard. I used to like to wear a beard. It's kind of a bushy thing. And I remember when Zach was just a tot, you know, I'd hold him and he'd reach his little hand over and he'd stick his hand in my beard. A lot of times he'd stick his hand in my beard and then he'd just, you know how they have that little clutching reflex? And so he would just clutch down and he'd grab him a handful of hair and he would pull with all his might, you know. Of course, he couldn't pull hard enough to pull it out. But it felt like it was coming out. It hurt. Even those little hands, it hurt whenever he yanked my beard. Ezra is so agonized over the people, the sin of the people, he yanks his hair. Now understand what these Jews had done, why Ezra reacted in such a way. Remember, these were the people that had seen their city leveled, their temple toppled, their babies carried off into exile because of the sin of idolatry. But what launched them into that idolatry? You could trace it back all the way to King Solomon, who, remember, married foreign women. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Solomon found that the marriage altar had led to the altars of idolatry. When he embraced these pagan wives, 
They brought their pagan gods into the marriage and it eventually caused Solomon to compromise his loyalty to the one true God. And this is what blew Ezra away. Is history about to repeat itself? Are the Jews making the same mistake all over again? Ezra stunned that the people would even think to flirt with this possibility. You'd think that marrying unbelievers would be the last sin that they would be tempted to commit after what had happened to them. How can this be? Notice verse 1 tells us the people of Israel did not separate themselves. Here was their first mistake. You know, as followers of Jesus, we are called to live lives separated from this world. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he told them to separate from this evil world. This is a vital principle, but it's one that oftentimes gets misunderstood. So many times, this idea of separating from the world gets interpreted to mean that the Christian should separate himself from folks spatially or perhaps culturally. In the Middle Ages, monks would literally remove themselves from the people. They would go off into the mountains or they would go out into the deserts to separate themselves from the world. Spatial separation, or you could call it logistical separation. In the church that I grew up in, we practiced more of a cultural separation. We refused to listen to the rock music that was popular at the time, and we refused to grow our hair long. I wore a crew cut for a long time, and when bell bottoms became popular, I still wore my little peg leg pants and all, and I was just kind of a cultural nerd because we were separate from the world. You know, we had to separate ourselves culturally. But you know, I think both logistical separation and cultural separation miss the point. God's desire for you and me is a heart separation. Jesus wants us to live in the world logistically. He wants us to relate to the world culturally. The separation that God expects from us is to reserve our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength for Him. We're not to allow the attractions of this world to crowd Jesus out of our lives. Notice too the issue for Ezra. Notice it wasn't interracial marriage. In fact, if you'll go back and look at Jesus' genealogy, you'll find Gentiles in Jesus' family tree. Rahab and Ruth were both Gentiles, but they became part of the Messiah's lineage. Notice the concern here in verse 2. The holy seed is intermingled with the people of the lands. But this should be viewed in light of verse 1. Israel has not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abomination of the Canaanites. This was the problem. It wasn't that they were Gentiles necessarily that they had married. They were pagan Gentiles. They were Gentiles who were involved in abominations that were displeasing to God. How can you say you love God if you go out and deliberately embrace and marry someone who is into abominations? Today, the holy seed should not intermingle with the unholy things. But that doesn't mean that we need to separate ourselves logistically or even culturally. It means that we should separate ourselves spiritually, that there should be a distinctive in our values and in our priorities and in our loyalties 
That's 180 degrees different than the rest of this world. It's interesting that Ezra's severe grieving is over a sin that he didn't commit. Notice this. His prayer in verse 6 is in the first person. And it shows how strong Ezra identified with the Jewish people. And guys, this is always the mark of a good leader. Verse 5 tells us, At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Now understand, this was not Ezra's sin. It was Judah's sin. And yet Ezra, he confesses the sin as if it belongs to him. I heard a saying years ago that if you're going to be part of the solution, you got to be part of the problem. In other words, you got to take ownership of the problem if you're going to be part of the solution. I think this is what Ezra's doing here. He's part of this nation. He feels a partner in what they're doing because they're his brothers, they're his sisters. He's an influencer over these people. Obviously, he's not influencing them enough. He says, since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Should we? It's a good question. Notice Ezra tells the people that they've been punished less than their sins deserve. Anybody else can relate to that? You know, when people ask me how I'm doing, most of the time I reply, a lot better than I deserve. They usually chuckle, but I'm dead serious. I am the recipient of bountiful mercies. Believe me. I've been treated a lot better than I deserve. God has been gracious to me. I have moments when I flash back to evil things that happened in my past. 
And I feel so stained. I feel so guilty. God, after what I've done, how could you be using me like you're doing today? And I have to kind of shake myself and I have to just come back to the cross. And I have to be thankful for what Jesus has done for me. No, I don't deserve it. I've never deserved it. I never will deserve it. I'm just so grateful for his mercy and his grace toward us. I don't want to forget that. Verse 14, would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. And that's where Ezra's prayer ends. It doesn't offer them a whole lot of hope for forgiveness, does it? I'm sure Ezra wanted God to forgive the people, to give them another second chance. You ever ask for another second chance? But Ezra knew that there were limits to God's patience, and there are. Don't fool yourself. Ezra didn't want to presume on God's grace. And so he just kind of ended the prayer without really giving them much hope. He was paralyzed by the sins of these people. Once again, he had no idea what to do next. Verse 1. Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. Notice the people now have joined Ezra in the temple. They're confessing their evil deeds. They're involved here in true repentance. And Ezra is devastated. If tears could wash away their sin, Israel would be forgiven. But understand, a flood of tears can never cleanse your sin. doesn't matter how hard you cry, how long you cry, how much you cry. It's up to God to forgive your sins. Well, suddenly, in the midst of Ezra's grief, a man named Shechaniah steps up and he speaks to Ezra. And his words are some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. Remember that man, Shechaniah. When you get to heaven, I'm going to meet him. He's a wonderful guy, I'm sure. Listen to what he says. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Don't you love those words? Yet now there is hope for us, even in spite of this. Nowhere will you read more soothing, liberating, merciful, gracious, far-reaching words than these. Israel is not just guilty of sin. They are guilty of repetitive sin. The same sin a second time. For me, those are the worst moments. When I know I'm guilty of the same sin over again. Lord, you forgave me once. God, I've tested your mercies. I've pushed your grace once more, Lord. I'm coming back to you again for the same thing. Will you forgive me? Is there any hope for me? That's when Shechaniah stood up and said, Yet now, even though you've sinned before and sinned and sinned, and you're asking again, even though all of that, still now 
There is hope for you in Israel. Isn't God's mercy great? Isn't his love for us lavish? His willingness to forgive far more than we deserve? Oh, I promise God that would never happen again, and now it has. Yet now, there is hope for us in spite of this. This was a dark day in Israel's history. And yet at the lowest point, God lets us know we can't possibly exhaust His boundless grace and His wonderful mercies. You know, even after you think you've maxed it out, there's still another dose for a heart that's truly repentant. As the people sang earlier in chapter 3, for God is good, for His mercy endures forever. Guys, let the truth spoken by Shechaniah sink into your heart. Yet now, there is hope for you, even in spite of what you've done. Shechaniah continues, Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. God will forgive the people, but there's still this matter of the unlawful marriages. And Shechaniah suggests that everyone who has married a pagan wife put their wife and their children away. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. Ezra agrees with Shechaniah's remedy, so they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up before the house of God, and he went into the chamber of Johananan, the son of Elishib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity." And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. In other words, you better show up. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. It was the month of December. And Jerusalem can get quite cold in the wintertime. It was cold. There was a heavy rain that was pelting the people. And yet they gathered in the rain. And then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities 
until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Ahazahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave their support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all of the men who had taken pagan wives. It took three months to conduct these interviews. Now, as they spoke to each of the families, the wife was given the opportunity to renounce her idols and her former beliefs and to commit her allegiance to the God of Israel. Only those wives who refused to repent of their sin and their idolatry were actually divorced from their husbands and expelled from the covenant community. Those who repented, I'm sure, were allowed to stay. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers, Messiah, Eliezer, Jerob, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. In other words, even the priests had indulged in this sin. 